Welcome to this episode of Reading Between the Wines, a podcast for those who may be on their way to book club and might not have completely read the book, and for those who want to learn a little more about wine. I'm your hostess, Winona Glass, joined as always by the Psalm of the South, Miss Keegan Moore. Howdy! But this is a big day for us here at Reading Between the Wines as we are on location at the William Chris Vineyards in High Texas. And we are joined today with our inaugural guest, Ms. Kelsey Kramer of William Chris, the in-house sommelier, educator, and content marketing manager. Kelsey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi. So I started with William Chris Vineyards about two years ago um, after I had gotten my certified sommelier badge. Mm -hmm. I've worked in the wine world for about 10 years. And uh, Texas found me. I'm from Texas, but had no idea what was happening here. Oh, wonderful. So when I found William Chris Vineyards, I stayed <laughs> um, and have had fun exploring their vast collection of whites, rosés, and reds mm-hmm. for a couple of years now. Wonderful. And so for today, we're doing things a little bit differently. Since this is intended to be a two-part podcast, because this book has so much to discuss, especially with Texas wines, we're going to pour our wines first. So Kelsey, tell us, what are we drinking today? So we're going to start with the 2020 vintage of Roussan, um, which Mm. is a white wine. It has 5% Marsan in it as well, coming from the Texas High Plains. Uh, So the vineyard designation here is La Pradera Vineyards. And then we're going to go to a red wine. It's the 2018 vintage of Mervedra, which is one of our absolute favorite grapes. It comes from six different vineyards in the Texas High Plains. That's kind of a staple here at William Chris, isn't it? The Mervedra? It is. And that one took us by surprise. Really? Yes. So I am not typically a white wine drinker, but you've given me a little insight into the Roussan. So tell me why, as a red wine drinker, I would like the Roussan. Well, first, I call this a red wine drinker's white wine. Anyone who comes in and says, I want a red wine, I pour them red wine, but I also find a way to pour them this white wine because... (laughs) Sneaky, (laughs) sneaky. It's delicious. (laughs) Roussan is a Rhone grape varietal from the south of France. It's often blended with uh, the more familiar Viognier, but Mm. Roussan has a little bit higher acidity, and it has a rouge colored skin. It's It looks red almost in the vineyard. Really? It works as kind of a sunscreen for the grapes, which makes oh. it very suited to Texas because we have a lot of sunlight days, lots of <laughs> intense sunlight, especially yes. in the Texas high plains. And the flavor of Roussan is fruity, yes, but it has this seductive edge to it. It can be aromatic. It can be fruity and have all of that other stuff that wine has. And as it sits in bottle, as it sits in the glass, it gets nutty or earthy or hay notes. And this expression has all of that realized. So when we're able to pour this for people, they don't understand at first what Roussan means, but since it's suited to Texas and we can pour this for people, they all of a sudden have an understanding of why in the world we would choose to bottle something like Roussan. And it makes sense for us. Mm-hmm. And, and I did take a sip. And for all of my fellow red wine drinkers out there, I will say I took a sip of this and it is quite good. This is a very hearty white wine. It's uh, It's got a lot of got a lot of uh, flavor behind it and a lot of depth. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. Wonderful. Um, If you ever go into the production facility that we have on site, um, Tony Ophill, our winemaker, will talk to you nonstop about mouthfeel. (laughs) It is a major deal to him. This wine has gone through Mm -hmm. large oak frudra. It's gone through some concrete aging. It's gone through some barrel aging and it's gone through stainless steel. All of that is adding layers to the wine. At the same time, we are minimal intervention. So we're not trying to take away the soul of the wine. We're not trying to harm it. We're trying to let you 
taste what La Pradera vineyards had to express through their Roussan. Mm-hmm. But those different vessels all add something different. Not flavor, but they allow the wine to have a creamy texture mm-hmm. or a rounder texture to coat your entire mouth. So if you're a red wine lover, your red wines are coating your entire mouth. Correct. This white wine can do the same exact thing. It's I, Now I'm on my second sip and it is quite... Um I'm I'm enjoying it a lot. I think I might be converted, Kelsey. I mean, not to all whites, but to definitely to the Roussan for sure. <laughs> Great texture. It's got a nice roundness. Kind of reminds me of like almost silk sheets, but like fluffy silk sheets, if that's a thing. I just want <laughs> I just want to be in the glass. <laughs> you yeah. want to roll around in yeah. it. Try that later. <laughs> <laughs> I um I get a little crazy with this white wine. I'm a white wine lover. I love Same. crisp. <laughs> I love the big, bold, oaky. I love sweet white wines. Whatever it is, if it's white wine, I love it. This, to me, you don't get all of that oakiness, but you get that weighted mouth feel. You mm-hmm. get luxury. You get yes. texture. You get fruity, but you also get all that other stuff that is often not expressed in wines um, especially from Texas, mm-hmm. you know, you start with fruity and then you tiptoe into the other things. And we're kind of diving into that other side of wine that can be really exciting. This white wine, I don't chill down quite as much as you would a crisp white wine mm-hmm. because it has that texture like a red wine. I want it to be even more textured and luxurious and unctuous. And then I decant it. Okay. It has enough to express that I lightly decant it and it perfumes out of the glass once that's done. Um, And wines that are one note or simple, Mm -hmm. you would never decant. They won't expand. They won't change. It won't get any better. (laughs) It won't get any better. You know, this is high quality wine from high quality grapes because you can't take good grapes and make excellent wine. You have to start with excellent grapes. These grapes are exceptional. They can change in a glass, in a decanter over Mm -hmm. time. And Roussan has that capability, and it makes me so excited. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely seems like the Rhone varieties are doing pretty well here, though. I think they're well-suited to climate here, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, but even so, um, they take on a different personality in Texas. Of course, they're well-suited because we have the sunshine days in the south of France, in Spain, and Italy. They have more sunshine, warmer days, if not hot. But in Texas soil we have enough differences that the Roussan here doesn't taste like a Roussan from France. The Mervedras here don't taste like the Mervedras from Spain or from the South of France and on and on and on. Cabernets that we make on site here, Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon, they taste like Texas Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. And it seems like you're proud of that and you're not trying to be like, oh, we're a Southern Rhone style winery, you know? No, and on that same page, we're not trying to be California, you know? Mm -hmm. They're making excellent Cabernets, excellent Chardonnays, excellent Pinot Noirs, Syrahs, all of it. Um, We maybe taste... William Chris Vineyards in particular is more old world in style. Our wines are more similar to France and Spain's rather than California's. And I think that's a big misconception when people come to Texas and ask for a Cabernet Sauvignon and then say, this doesn't taste like California at all. Well, of course not. And it doesn't taste like France <laughs> either. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a point of excitement. Why would we want to be copycats? We're not trying to steal anything from the markets of California or France. We're trying to become another exciting player on the market. Distinctively Um, Texas. Distinctively Texas, exactly. (laughs) It's like saying Sicilian wine tastes like all Italian wine. That is Mm. not so. It's so different. Right. 
You have mm. a combination of sunshine, temperature, fluctuations, soil types, volcanic soil, mountainous Super active areas. volcanoes. Yeah. <laughs> All of that is a huge point of difference to the rest of Italy. And Texas is no different, except that it's not an island. <laughs> of course. And so tell us about the red, the Morvedra that you poured. Oh, I love this wine. So this... <laughs> Uh, this Mervedra, while we do bottle single vineyard uh, expressions of Mervedra all across the state of Texas to mm-hmm. showcase that site variation, mm-hmm. no vineyard tastes the same as the next, even if it's the same grape. This is a blend of six different vineyards from the Texas High Plains. This is our Texas High Plains Mervedra from the 2018 vintage. Okay. This wine was made specifically to reach further. It was made to go into stores like HEB. Mm-hmm. We have this wine in, I think, Louisiana, in Kansas. I think it's it might be in New York as well. It was made to go through distribution. But as we've made this wine year to year, it has become one of all of our favorites. People who are pouring our wine and buying our wine have fallen in love with this. So it has become much more purposeful. This is the first vintage that we've played with extended maceration on the skins. Mm. That's a nod to the very Bandol French style of Mervedra. That depth, that um, lengthened aging on the skin adds extra layers to the wine. It increases the mouthfeel, which um, is the whole purpose behind doing that Mm -hmm. extended maceration in the first place. But also each vineyard is bringing its own personality. So you have an extremely layered wine that has incredible texture and has been experimental for us. It's about 20% new oak, not a lot. Um, the oak flavor is seasoning instead of taking over the wine. So what you're getting is an expression of a very important AVA in Texas for us from one of the varieties that has taken us by surprise and has been maybe the most successful grape that we've worked with year to year, especially in major frosts. I don't think we've had any more Vedra Mm-mm. on the podcast We haven't. So this has been great. And I got to tell you, this smells really good. Like it's got like a smoky smell to it to me. and smoky, kind of peppery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in France, Mervedra is a big blending grape. In places like Bandol, it does stand alone, but that's a very small region. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Rhone Valley, Mervedra is used in 10% or less a lot of the time wow. to add a smoky edge. Acidity, color. A in Spain. Yep. Little different beasts. And then I'm sure there's some uh, Mataro. Mm-hmm. In Australia. California, California and Australia tend to call it Mataro. And all those I, styles I like are it. made very differently. Uh, and Texas is even more different. Yes. No, this is great. This is, I could see why this is one of the staples here at William Chris. It's so aromatic too. Mm-hmm. In Texas and around the world, Mervedra can have a lot of trouble being successful in a vineyard because it it takes about five years to fruit instead of three. It takes a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. The vines, if you look at them, they look ragged. <laughs> but the fruit is fantastic. Um, so the, the reason that we've fallen in love with this is because we planted all of these grapes that we thought, hey, that makes sense for Texas. Let's do it. Mervedra was maybe low on the list. It wasn't the first choice by any means. But there was a major freeze in, I think it was 2013 or 14. Yeah, (laughs) 70, 75% of grapes in the High Plains were destroyed. Chris Brundrett tells the story that he and Bill Blackman, our co-founders, they were in the vineyard harvesting Mervedra while all the other farmers were watching them because all of their grapes had been destroyed. Oh, no. Mervedra is so frost resistant. Mm -hmm. That is sustainability practices in the vineyard. And that's what William Chris does. If 
our grapes are being destroyed because of frost, you have to plant different grapes Mm -hmm. so that they can live long-term. Even if they take a little bit extra time to fruit, even if they're a bit of an investment, if they don't look pretty, it doesn't matter. They make delicious wine and that's what matters. They're surviving. Mm -hmm. So this is a survivor's wine. I mean, it's the ultimate Texas. This is a thriver's wine. That's for sure. We don't just survive. We thrive. We thrive. That's what Texas is about, right? It's very well balanced. It's got some killer acidity, obviously body and alcohol as well, but that is to be expected, but... So Keegan, I know that you and I have this conversation a lot. Well, you have the conversation and I listen, is about to decant or not to decant. So um, I know you talk about briefly decanting the Roussan, but what about the Morvedra? Do you decant the Morvedra or do you not decant the Morvedra? I do. Um, I know a lot of people don't. And a lot of people like to chill this wine down and drink it like a Pinot Noir, um, okay. which is unique. Mm-hmm. I choose to decant mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I agree with you, Keegan. With the face that you have, yes. I agree. I um, did an experiment with this wine that was so much fun. I poured, I opened the bottle, I poured one glass, I got a second glass, and I decanted some of the wine and poured it in that glass. And then I double can- decanted and poured it in the third glass. Oh, wow. All tasted delicious, totally different. By the end, really? the double decanted was more incense and floral. The center one was um, floral and it had a pop of candied fruit. And the undecanted one has all that smoky mm-hmm. intensity. So there's no right way to do it. There's no right. wrong way to do it. Um, obviously drink it within three days of opening or else it's vinegar. <laughs> yeah. But from there, it's really your personal preference. Decant a little and see how it does for you. That would be fun at a like a dinner party or something to do that, to have it just straight out the bottle, to have it decanted, and then to have it double decanted. And as we get into the book, we're going to talk a little bit about these, the vertical wine tasting, which was a new, completely new thing for me. But, um, but that seems more, would you call it horizontal wine tasting? We'd have to invent a new word for that. Yeah. I yeah. mean, technically it would be horizontal, right? Because it's from the same So the same vintage and the, the same, same winery and it's just, yeah. you've done something different to it. But yeah, we'll call it the jagged line. Uh, <laughs> the zigzag tasting. The zigzag tasting. Yes. We, we're going to invent a new term here, uh, the zigzag tasting. And that is when you don't decant, then you decant and then you double decant. And so is there a triple decanting? I don't know. How far yeah. can our zigzag go? You can decant as much you as go, you want. Yeah, as many until vessels the as you have. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> definitely like a limit yeah. and you'll find it. <laughs> but that might be a fun, you know, dinner party type of conversation to have is like, okay, let's do this as a, a zigzag zigzag tasting. Let's, if we keep saying it, it'll catch on. Zigzag. We've coined it. <laughs> yeah. Trademark pending. <laughs> so shall we talk about the book? Please. Start page one. Here we go. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so this was a great book to talk about with a vineyard because I feel like phylloxera, trigger warning, we're going to talk about insects um, just for anyone out there. But phylloxera is a very real issue with vineyards. Is that fair, Kelsey? Yes. I mean, it has a huge history of being extremely destructive. Um, There is no cure for it. So it's a major threat. Um, Mm -hmm. Something I didn't realize that is that the aphid that is phylloxera is constantly evolving. I didn't realize that there are 10 different evolved versions of phylloxera out there in the world today mm-hmm. that are trying to find a way back into the vineyards and yay evolution <laughs> yeah we found our solution but who knows how long that will actually last so the book that we read for this podcast was root caused by Stephen Lane it came out in February of 2019 and the premise of this book is that 
Corvina Guerrera is our kind of our main character here, and she is a flying winemaker, which we'll get into that because I didn't even know that was a thing. And she discovers phylloxera because phylloxera, as we have discussed before on the podcast, is this nasty little bug that lives and kills things and is not welcome anywhere in the world, um, as we will discuss very extensively here. But Kelsey, tell me, what did you think about this book? I thought the book was a super fun read. Um, mm-hmm. As someone who's studied wine for pretty intensively for the past five years, mm-hmm. I learned a lot from this book. Really? That's, yeah. That says a lot because I learned a lot, but I thought it was just because I don't know a lot. I mean, it's not my no. that's not my role on this podcast. <laughs> that is all Keegan's role. And so Winona's just here for the books, which, you know, as we joke, no one says ever about a <laughs> book club book. Um, uh, yes. So I'm happy to hear that you learned a lot because I was, I, I mean, I felt like every time I turned the page, I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> it's as, as I've studied from books and encyclopedias. That's how people are doing wine nowadays. There are mm-hmm. programs that you can sign up for, classes that you can take, textbooks. When I had planned to travel the world learning about wine, there was this um, tiny other virus, thing other virus going that on. came through. Yeah, <laughs> that canceled all my plans. So I haven't traveled to these places. It's clear that the author has actually traveled to these places because mm-hmm. the things that are mentioned in the book are not in the textbooks and encyclopedias that I've read. And that's all I read. Mm-hmm. So it was a pleasure to read that. The storyline is very fun. <laughs> it is exciting yes. and dramatic. And it oh took me goodness. for a ride that I enjoyed. Good, good. Keegan, what did you think about the book? Same. I was like uber dorking out, like nerd <laughs> level 100% all so, the time. <laughs> so for all three of us, for two people who know a lot about wine and for one person who just likes to read books... You all learned some, we all learned something from this book. Absolutely. Like, we all really enjoyed from a winemaker's perspective, from a viticulture perspective, and from a book reader's perspective, we definitely enjoyed this book. And so. you're right. We all learned, I mean, they, they touch on all the different topics. It's winemaking. Mm-hmm. It's also a history of wine. It's producer specific. Mm-hmm. And you learn about viticulture. I mean, they didn't tackle just one Oh of my those goodness. topics. Right. And in, in, in the second part of this podcast, we're even going to talk a little bit more about ice wine and how they pick the ice wine. And I mean, we kind of went the gamut of grapes as well and types of wine. I mean, we just wine kind of regions, threw everything in there. Countries, continents. Continents. <laughs> we went to like all the continents, I feel like. Uh, this, this book definitely travels the world for sure. We go to France, Italy, California, South Africa, Hong Kong, Chile, London, Canada, Dubai. I mean, we hit them all. We and we even talk about the different methods of transportation in each of these places. It's different yes. every single time. And I every mean, they, time. it makes you feel like you're reading a traveler's book. Right. I feel like this was kind of like part Condé Nast and part wine enthusiast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this book is kind of like those two had an extended version. So again, we meet Corvina. Corvina is a flying winemaker. So again, what what is a flying winemaker? I didn't even know this was a thing. <laughs> It is a thing. Um, flying winemakers can work for companies. They can be independent flying winemakers. But I, I think, um, in my limited knowledge about what a f- flying winemaker is, is that it was birthed out of the northern hemisphere versus southern hemisphere thing. A winemaker is making wine around harvest time in the couple months afterwards, and then the wine is aged in barrels. So if you can fly to another hemisphere where harvest is going to start while your other wine is in barrel, you can tackle an entire year, potentially make double the money. 
the cost of travel is minute compared to how much you can make bottling a whole nother collection of wine. And then it's become a consultant winemaker. Mm-hmm. It grew into that. Consultant winemakers have been around for a long time. They fly to different wineries and give you advice, sometimes help with the winemaking, the harvest. I mean, there's different levels of involvement, but it's it's dependent on each region's needs. Sure. Consultant winemakers. Gamut. Yeah. The big, big companies are putting a new winery in Chile. And so they'll send a well-known winemaker down there, but mm-hmm. also like Raul Perez and Bierzo, like bringing up that region that previously like most world drinkers didn't know about. Yeah. I think it's a very respected tradition. And so that was a really interesting, just that whole, again, we're at page one of the book <laughs> and we're already talking about things I didn't know existed, like flying winemakers. Uh, so she's flying to Italy. She's visiting one of her clients uh, who her large conglomerate of a corporation owns a vineyard there and uh, discovers phylloxera. That's an insect that attacks the vines. And the only way that you can fix it is to pull them up and burn them. And that the seems, soil. that seems tragic, Sli- slightly extreme, <laughs> tragic, dramatic, extreme. Like I had all the emotions as she's standing there and they're like pulling up the vines and the winemaker's like, Hey, come on in. I'm going to have a tasting with you. And she was like, um, you're burning your vines. And he's like, yeah, well, I can't do anything about that right now. So let's just come and have an experience. Which again, I think attests to how much like passion that this has. I couldn't imagine being a winemaker or a vineyard owner or something like that and having literally seeing the fruits of your labor <laughs> being ripped out and burned because of this insect that is spreads faster than a virus that we all experienced for the past couple of years. I can imagine that it is a huge threat to vineyards, phylloxera, just reading this book and about like how fast it spreads. And as we find out that it's being done perhaps intentionally, and it it just was heartbreaking as a wine consumer to think of a world without wine. And that seemed to be the path that this book was going, which definitely terrified me. I mean, I, I drank extra just to make sure. <laughs> Smart. But think about like the 1860s when this was first being introduced. Mm-hmm into Europe, they had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. And this is an insect that likes to attack the roots. So it can be in your vineyard and you have no idea for years. Mm. And then all of a sudden you can see the problem finally. And like you said, there's no real solution. We figured out a great remedy to our American a problem. A Band-Aid. I mean, that's really what it is, right? Which is it's right. A, mm-hmm. To graft. So you graft onto American rootstock. That's the solution because they're a little more resistant to phylloxera or uh, philomena. Philomena, <laughs> yes. Oh, our <laughs> beloved Malcolm and his autocorrect. So Malcolm is another character in this book that gets introduced, and he is a... He is a journalist, and he is writing about what happens in California. And it's kind of this, like third, you know, like buried in the paper, like not a big deal kind of story. Like he's just writing about it because somebody told him about it. And he was like, okay, do, 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 do. Doesn't even autocorrect it. I mean, doesn't even spell check it. So autocorrect changes phylloxera to philomena. So the article gets published. And as this um, 
snowball starts to gain traction and more and more people are hearing about this throughout the world, they have just decided they're going to, they need, they need an enemy, right? And so just like Karen has become the (laughs) universal name for someone who's difficult, we now have Philomena is this bug that is traveling the world and destroying our agriculture in, in wine, in, in grapes specifically. And it seems like, so poor Philomena, Corvina interacts with uh, Malcolm because she's doing a Google search to try to find out about, is this happening anywhere else in the world? Because Corvina has decided that no one's going to listen to her, so she needs to make this her like one-woman quest to solve phylloxera around the world because she knows from the first vineyard, if it's at one, it's got to be everywhere. And it can travel very, very quickly. It, it made me very reminiscent of something that's been going on for the past couple of years um, in that this book came out in 2019. So prior to a pandemic, but it was very apropos um, as to everything that else was going on. But she, she, does, she comes across Brian Lawless, who is the other main character in this, and in kind of a weird way. Um, so Brian is this like disgraced master of wine candidate because he did some horizontal dancing (laughs) with one of the other judges and that may have gotten him frowned upon from the um from the wine and spirits education trust and so uh he is disgraced and disrespected and so he's decided that he's going to prove the whole that like all of the vintage wines that are being sold at auction houses are fake so he's not making any more friends as he's going through life. Like he's already ruined his life. So he's like, ah, I just might as well Continue. take out as many people as Ruffling I can. Feathers. Right, right. If I'm going to frustrate one person, I might as well frustrate a bunch of people, right? So uh, Corvina interacts with him. And I thought it was interesting too. When she met him, he was like working a job yeah. as like an in investigator London. of wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very weird when he was like, oh, that guy's selling wine below cost and that guy's like laundering money. And, on it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, holy cow. Like, okay, again, another job I didn't know existed, right? Was some sort of like secret shopper for bars. But that's what Brian is. But he's secretly trying to like redeem his name and Corvina's given him this opportunity with Philomena, which we all start lovingly calling by the end of the book. Um, so Corvina's given him this opportunity. So the two of them kind of like not trusting each other at the beginning, but they definitely decide they need each other because they own, they each have their own unique skill set that they bring and, and they travel the world together. And what I did like about this book is that it didn't have that whole this is going to end in a nice tidy bow. It, it it didn't it didn't fall into that trap which I appreciate from the author that two people could work together and try to solve an issue and not have to end up in bed together. <laughs> yeah. It definitely seemed like that at first right? because she's going through a divorce or yes. leaving her yes. cheating, smoking hot husband. Well, and I mean, Brian's he's Italian. Forward. <laughs> yeah. Brian's forward, like from the beginning. Very much so. Yeah. Uh-huh. But again, I feel like that was just kind of establishing his personality mm-hmm. and it didn't 
that storyline didn't evolve, which I was grateful for because I don't feel like it. We don't need a when Harry met Sally in every book that we read. It wasn't needed by it the end. Wasn't, it, it wasn't. wasn't. It wasn't. I was enough action. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. there was enough that happened. <laughs> yes, there was a lot going on, especially because we keep having this reoccurring character, oh, Candy. I mean, come on, we couldn't come up with a better name than Candy. That was yeah. the one he was having. That Brian was having the uh, horizontal tango with. And she keeps showing up. She shows up like three different places. She shows up at the awards. She shows up in Dubai. Like she keeps showing up. And I'm like, oh my gosh. With red lipstick on. Well, of course. Of course she If does. your name is Candy, you're showing up with red lipstick on. And I felt like that was such a contrite explanation of her. But, you know, I, I, I'm not the author. I'm just the reader. So... <laughs> So anyway, so we're we're going through, we're flying everywhere. Corvina flies to California. She's like determined. She's going to make her way into the CEO's office. Like, you have to do something about this. And he's like, I who who are you? Like, <laughs> you work for you work here, right? <laughs> so as she's leaving, her boss comes out and he's like, you know what? You're right. You're right. Let's let's do this. Whatever you need, you have. You have carte blanche. And I'm just saying, I could have used that credit card because they flew some awesome places. Yeah. I mean, this was like, again, like I said, Condé Nast. In two weeks. I don't even know. Like at the end of this, the jet lag had to be atrocious. Like what time zone are you even in? Did you even sleep? No. (laughs) I don't feel like they did at all. Until they get to the Vin Expo in Bordeaux when she talks about the birds chirping and their little bistro thing. I'm like, okay, we'll get to the... Bordeaux Vin Expo because things get really crazy. So at the beginning, she's still trying to figure out what in the world's going on. She has this like crazy idea that phylloxera is going to take over all of the vineyards in the whole world. Kind of unfounded, kind of hearsay, very much a conspiracy theory, I think Mm -hmm. is the right term right now. And so the CEO's like, I mean, chase it for a little while, whatever. (laughs) This flying winemaker from Italy. Sure, Corvina. Yes. Just go wherever you think. Uh-huh. And so she she does, and she starts to discover it in more and more and more places. And she teams up with Brian, and now they're a duo traveling the world. As she's Googling about it, she finds out about the, the article that Malcolm has written. So now they're contacting Malcolm. So now they're... Their duo is a trio in some instances. Malcolm's kind of a distant party. Like, he does a lot of the research for them. He, he doesn't come in a whole lot. He shows up in Canada, which I thought was odd, but it was like, okay. Um, I guess the uh, newspaper's budget wasn't quite as lucrative <laughs> yeah. as the Universal Wines <laughs> budget. Left sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so they start traveling the world. And in a parallel story, Interpol has also taken note of the fact that Phylloxera has come back. And our poor Claude, <laughs> Claude, I feel like Claude is like the representative of every like kind of Interpol kind of worker back, you know, like shoved in a back closet somewhere and no one, he's kind of like, if you've ever watched the movie Office Space, he's kind of like the red swing line, you know, like somebody stole my stapler kind of guy. Like that's how he's portrayed. (laughs) Yeah. And if you watch the movie Catch Me If You Can, he's the Tom Hanks character, right? That's kind of like working late all the time, over numbers, looking at things no one else cares about. He's dealing with some sort of the trash issue, like with the landfill. And They have a really funny line towards the end where he's having to run mm-hmm. and he's like, man, I'm always sitting at a desk and eating so many canales. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have eaten as many because <laughs> I'm exhausted now. <laughs> He 
He's that guy. He is that from guy. From Interpol. I mean, from Interpol. So, you know, like, this is his big moment to shine. And he's like, look, I'm telling you, this is a thing. And we've been tr- we've been tracking this and we've been seeing this and more and more people, like, this is going to be a thing. Well, so he's parallel investigating this while Corvina is like sounding all the alarms because she's like, we have vineyards all over the world and all of our vineyards are going to be affected and we need to go see all of them. And then we haven't talked about poor Sergio, but Sergio is her competition. They have the same job title. He is also a flying winemaker, but he is like the one who's always trying to put her down or to make her look bad or something. And so um, she's not a big fan of Sergio and Sergio's kind of written to be the not nice character in this book, right? Who's not good at his job either. Yeah, he's not as knowledgeable as her. He's not as in-depth. He's definitely a little more crass because it seems like he was, like, Corvina comes in, makes everybody feel good, and you're doing a great job. Sergio comes in and is like, you guys all suck. (laughs) Everything you're doing is horrible. And so they have different approaches to the same outcome, right? I'm sure that he's a very decent at his job, but it doesn't seem that he is got the same flair and finesse that Corvina might have. It's a little deeper than that, I think. It's um, two opposing views of how wine should be made currently in the world. It's mass production versus site-specific, you know, boutique wineries. Uh Um, Because she's going through saying terroir matters, Mm -hmm. site selection matters, the way the grapes grow matters. Don't do things that you shouldn't be doing to your wines. Don't add things to your wines. And then Sergio comes in and replaces her and says, don't worry about the grapes. Just just harvest them. They'll be fine. You can add things to it. You know, you should, I don't remember what he recommends specifically, but it's something that is known as kind of cutting corners Mm -hmm. in the wine world. Wood chips or something. Wood chips. Instead of using oak to save money. That's exactly what it is. It's very controversial. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that's why they have Corvina speaking so much in the beginning about how she likes to see winemakers treating their wines versus when Sergio comes in and makes those recommendations that are very controversial currently in the wine world and have become increasingly more used in the wine world. Things like dyes, things like additives, things like oak chips. I mean, they were very, I I think the author was very thoughtful about what he had Sergio saying versus Corvina. I love that take on it. I, again, you, you guys obviously know more about wine than I do. Ties into William Chris. And so that is a really great take on that. So I appreciate that insight because I hadn't thought of it in that respect, but that's why it was a little more crass and sterile versus Mm -hmm. compassionate and terroir Mm -hmm. focused to distinctively different views as to how to produce wine. And there's many more views. It's not black and white. There's a grayscale there. Definitely. Definitely. And this is a a longer conversation, but I do think it was very specific the way the author spoke about those two. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, touched a chord with me. Well, that's amazing. And that's why we love books, right? Books that resonate with us. So Vicente is both Corvina and Sergio's boss. And so again, we have kind of this pivotal person who is has got to balance the two personalities because Sergio's a very different personality than Corvina. And to your point now, they have two different kind of focuses. Methods, and yeah. Yes, two different methods and two different outcomes uh, for the same vineyard. So Claude is is helping <laughs> try to solve this mystery as well. And, and bless his heart, he has a boss that is a character that I, I really found superfluous. Allison is I got something to prove. Like she's out there to make Claude's life 
horrible. And she definitely wants to assert herself as the dominant in that relationship. And she's like just straight disrespectful. She's a straight up not nice person. It ends in an itch. (laughs) But yeah, she's just not. the, The character is written as a very abrasive personality. And to the storyline as a whole, I don't think like Allison contributed anything other than that kind of constant conflict that happens when you have to manage up in life. And sometimes that happens. But like she had a bone to pick with everybody. She had something to prove. I mean, towards the end of the book, they put a tracker on her because they don't trust her. I mean, if Interpol doesn't trust you and you work for Interpol, I think there's an issue. You know, when the when the Minister of Agriculture of all of France has trust Claude more than he trusts Allison. Like you are in the wrong place. Like you are not in the right spot in life. But I don't know. I just felt like it wasn't a, it wasn't germane to the conversation. It wasn't germane to the storyline other than it add a little drama at the end, but we had a lot of drama at the end. We'll get to that. So I was actually surprised that she was not part of the huge conspiracy plot to spread Philomena around the world. Mm -hmm. You know, when she disappears and, you know, they're tracking her, I was like, oh, she is surely part of this. Mm -hmm. She's orchestrated it and made it look like she was super against it the entire time. Right. But then she wasn't. She was one of the only people not in on it. Right. Right. She really just was an itch. Yeah. You know, that's- (laughs) She uh, was just terrible. She was just not a nice person. Yeah. So, but that was a kind of a whole character storyline that I just kind of thought was- not necessary. <laughs> yeah, it just made it it added a character in my opinion for like confusion's sake as opposed to actually being more adding more depth to the story. But Interpol's involved now and what kind of a twist on this is that Interpol now thinks that Corvina is the one who is spreading phylloxera or philomena kind of because of Allison. I mean in, right. in their defense, she might have been Yeah, because she can spread from humans, they were looking, they weren't taking the right protocols. Right. And they were looking at the flight records of people who, like, they were running it through an algorithm to see who had been traveling to all of these areas. And surprise, Corvina Number had one. <laughs> showed up on most of these. I find it interesting that she must have gone, like, two places without Brian or something because Brian didn't come up in all of this. It was just Corvina. Like, so Corvina's now public yeah. enemy number one. Even though... <laughs> She only traveled to like two places before she hooks up with Brian because she was in Italy. She goes back to California and then she goes somewhere and then she ends up in London. So I feel like Brian got off the hook here because they should have both been uh, on. I thought she got pegged more because of the article that was written. No, it was before that. And I don't remember why. Um, she had been to all the places mm-hmm. and it was because Brian kind of joined her afterwards. Maybe they. I have no no He'd still clue. He'll be a great accomplice. Like, yeah, and he's yeah. a disgraced master of wine candidate. Yeah. I feel right. like if you look Who's at the track like record, making making enemies as he goes through life. Yeah, so he definitely has the motivation. Yeah, the, the, the motive operandi. Yeah, so he's and got, she's a respected flying winemaker. Right, who's she never done anything not, wrong. She's like your girl next door. You know, the perfect, pristine, no, lots of colorful scarves. She has the least motive. Yes. I think of everybody. Her own a vineyard. And so, yeah, she has the least motivation of anybody to spread phylloxera because it would devastate her whole family tradition. Yeah. And what her parents do. And, oh my gosh, I don't know about y'all, but when she calls her dad and her dad is crying because phylloxera has entered their vineyard, I was, oh, I felt that. Like, yeah, that hurt because the one that she originally discovered it at was not far 
from her parents' vineyard. Uh, and and phylloxera does spread fairly quickly, and it can spread, like you'd mentioned, Keegan, it can spread by people and on the bottom of your shoe or in the wind. Wow. And she made the good point that once phylloxera is in one vineyard, mm-hmm. it has probably been there for months. Mm-hmm. You don't see, you know, what's happening to the grapevines above ground for some time. Years. But the lot. aphids are still attacking the root system during that entire time. I'm surprised she didn't fly home immediately and go dig around in her family's dirt in in their rows of vines. Mm-hmm. They were probably there the entire time. I'm sure they were. And I did find that interesting too, not understanding how phylloxera works. And, you know, except for as more we got into this book, when they would go into some of these vineyards, especially like in Bordeaux, and they were trying to be like, oh, look, we're just walking the vineyards. And then they'd be like digging in the dirt so that they could see if the phylloxera was actually at the roots or not. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine what people were thinking as, because a couple of, they got chased off of a couple of places for that because they're like, what are you doing? Why are you digging up our roots? <laughs> um, Trying to see if you have phylloxera or not, which I just feel like would be like a get, like, why are you saying that? Like you're jinxing us by even bringing it up. But I do appreciate that the minister of agriculture in France was like, like sound all the alarms. This is, and again, it was a term I had never heard before that came up, an eco-terrorist. And that was kind of the term that Claude and Interpol had uh, had deemed. We've not introduced this character yet, but there is someone who was researching phylloxera and was researching all of this and had was starting to kind of quietly talk about what would happen if there was a new phylloxera outbreak. David Slater, of course, you know, being a child of the 80s, I could only think of A.J. Slater from Saved by the Bell. But <laughs> yeah, very different. Um, so David Slater is, is, our, is a character that's in the book, but we never actually really meet him. We never really get to know him other than peripherally. And we get to know him because he had worked in the original vineyard that Corvina found the phylloxera in. And he was a student in Canada and was studying phylloxera and trying to come up with a better remedy than grafted American rootstock. Is that a fair assumption for what his original intentions were? His original intentions, I think, were to note the progression of phylloxera as a species and find out how to enhance that progression or speed it up Mm. so that the current remedies we have are negligent, Mm-hmm. I think that's the word. And to create a new species, an advanced species of phylloxera, along with a different remedy, a neurotoxin mm-hmm. that will... That he could profit off of for selling the answer to the problem yeah. he was creating or researching. Which is... Yeah. So I think when when Claude and Interpol deem him an eco-terrorist, that's a very legitimate title to give to him because he wanted to find a way to speed up an already horrible issue just so that he could profit off of it on the back end. I I don't know. I just, that seems very, very bad. (laughs) Seems very, you know, demonic almost in thinking uh, as a way to like ruin someone else's life just so that you can profit off of it multiple people's lives, like millions of people, because we're talking about vineyards and the people who work in the vineyards, the owners. We're talking about the corporations that own some of these vineyards that produce the wine. 
and what I thought was really interesting is that there's a lot of that, that there's a lot of parallels in the book with what's actually going on in the real world, how different pesticides are being used in different things and, and such. And so it was a very, we'll get to the ending of the book later, but we meet our little friend, David Slater, and he's, because he had written back and forth with some other people with the professor in Canada, which is how they ended up in Canada. I did think that the storyline tied through their travels pretty well, you know, like, oh, we're going to fly to Canada now because that's, and they just happened to be there during harvest. Yeah. Shocking. (laughs) To learn something. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. To learn something as they chase David Slater through the frozen vineyards in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, a little added excitement that we had in the book, but it's been a a very interesting kind of thought process and opportunity to to learn more about the wine making process and some different things that affect vineyards and some things that are definitely not part of of my everyday thought process. I'm sure working in a vineyard, it may be part of of the vineyard owners or the uh, the winemaker. It might be part of their daily process of how do we make sure that we are ensuring against this or what we do, but. From my perspective, I, it's not something I even knew existed until I read this book. I mean, we've talked about phylloxera, but to understand the actual like mass devastation that happened because of it, I was a little, I was a little shocked at it. In, yeah, in once this. France, yeah, was like legitimately concerned about it. They were like, "Oh no, this is serious. We want all of our people on it. Like, send in the troops, mm-hmm. get in Bordeaux. Right? What's happening in Champagne?" We're surrounding all of our vineyards. Like we're, yeah. They had the drones out. (laughs) I wonder if there is a game plan in France, if that should ever happen again, Mm -hmm. what the protocol that's written up Mm -hmm. is, you know, who can cross borders, how many guards are there going to be, what restrictions. And, And we'll talk about that in the next podcast. So I feel like that was not an effective way to prevent phylloxera, like throwing troops at the borders. I, I don't know. We'll talk about that in the next podcast. But thank you, Kelsey, for being here with us today. Um, this is the ver- the first of two podcasts. Uh, so stay tuned for the second half of this book. This book has a lot more to offer and we have more wines to drink, which is even more exciting. And so thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you so very much. William Chris has been an amazing host to us today. Uh, and so we thank you for that. We'd like to thank our amazing audio engineer in Colin Caston and to our fantastic producer in Stacy Grow. So until next time, always keep your glass half full. Cheers. Cheers.